Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. So, hello, welcome back um, to another Unpacking Contract Law. And we're starting with a thank you to Newcastle Law School for sponsoring the podcast as always. Um, today we have a listener's request. Our case for today is Hadley and Baxendale, one of the probably best known contract law cases, um, I would say, that's, that's around. Um, all of our listeners probably know of this one. Or if not, spoiler alert, this is probably coming up in your course um, in a few weeks' time. And the basic facts of Hadley and Baxendale, um, it's, it's a nice easy case really. Um, Hadley, uh, there's a mill in Gloucester, the big operation there. It was run through a steam, steam engine, I think, steam machine, uh, produced by Messers. Now, Messers are still in business, and there's some recent cases, actually, um, uh, involving Messers as well. And the shaft uh, on the mill was fractured, um, which brought the whole operation to a halt. And that's going to become quite important. So Hadley needed a new one, and they contacted uh, W. Joyce and Co. to make another one. And to do so, they needed the broken shaft as a template for the new one. I don't know much about the engineering side of these things, but I can imagine that you can use a mould or something to make it. And they contacted uh, Pickfords and Co., who are owned by Joseph Baxendale. Pickfords is still in business. They actually put on their website, started off by Joseph Baxendale. They're still there. They're still working. So this didn't bankrupt them. They contact them to take the broken shaft to Greenwich, so Glossop to Greenwich. The servant who took the shaft, or was, was going to take the shaft to Pickfords, told the clerk there that the mill had stopped. So they told them uh, at the desk and that they have to send it immediately. So... Oh, I'm going to interject here. Is that actually proven? Well, no, I mean, we're getting... That is the point of dispute, whether they were told specifically the whole damn operation had stopped. I'm going to be... Yes. Pedantic at that yes, point. Yes, that's... I'm, I'm getting to it. Um, you've taken away the lie. Oh, well. OK. So, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was disputed. That's better. But now I'm happy. There we go. There we go. Can't even get through an introduction in this place. It, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was agreed then that if they got it to Pickford's before noon, they would take it down the next day. Or they'd take it across, I suppose, the next day. Uh, and it would arrive uh, the following day. So, what happened then is that although it was supposed to go the next day, I think it took a total of seven days to actually get there. We don't exactly know why, we just know by some neglect. So, well, I do know you know why? why? Go, go on then, Maggie. Did you look into this <laughs> well, further? Well, yeah, I did look at I some of the sort of background yeah. story to this. It went by wagon mm -hmm. and was held up in London mm. when it went then by canal with some other goods that were destined for 
choice. Oh God, I regret. I re- yes, I actually remember that. Not that it really matters. That point of yeah, no, no, no. I, it's I just, wouldn't yeah. pick you up on that pedantic point of detail, <laughs> young Tim. Uh, it was just the point about whether or not they actually knew that the thing was stopped. The whole mill. Yes. But yes, that was the explanation. It got held up. So uh, an interesting point about the Industrial Revolution. Starts off in wagon, ends up on a canal. Yeah, on a canal, yes. Days. Which was significantly well, cheaper, not wasn't how it? how we would transport stuff. Um, I guess so, but a hell of a lot sm- slower. Yes. Yeah, a bit like, you know, going by plane today or versus putting it on a big tanker ship and it taking a few weeks. Yeah. And I think the same principle probably applies there. And the argument there was that in normal circumstances, a mill operation that size probably would have spare parts on hand in other words and sending one down would, wouldn't cause this kind of disruption as we see it which is a loss of profits over a number of days and so we get to the judgment and there i'm going to read out the the extract i think that is in everyone's mind this is the one that's always in textbooks everything you can confirm of course where two parties have made a contract which one of them has broken the damages with the other party ought to receive in respect of such breach of contract should be as such may fairly and reasonably be considered either either arising naturally i.e according to the usual course of things from such breach of contract itself or such as may reasonably be supposed to have been in the contemplation of both parties at the time they made the contract as a probable result of the breach so we're going to kick off a little differently today aren't we because maggie has kindly shared a picture of the mill so we have a picture of the mill which looks to me like it's been converted into a set of flats is that right yes uh, it does so they didn't survive then what do we think to that then you are that that's living history that's living law isn't it how nice that the building has not been demolished and if you ever go to gloucester england as our american cousins would say there must be other gloucesters but if you go to gloucester England and go down to the docks you you can view that yourself and it's got a little blue plaque on the side of the wall that actually captures the essence of of what young Dr Tim has just said and you can actually see you can they've done it quite nicely actually because you can still see presumably where, where goods would have been taken out in and out and that thing on the side I presume if they had a steam engine that would have been where they let out smoke and stuff which is now probably a staircase i don't know but if, if you go to the gloucester docks mm. uh, you can see a, a large number of warehouses that were very busy mm. in the uh, mid 1800s as it were and then gloucester sort of fell by the wayside in terms of commercial activity um, in, in the latter part of that century i think probably because the the port yes. was not really big enough for the very large vessels that that came on stream as it were so its fortunes declined but it's always been quite a, a busy little place in terms of business so it's um it's well worth visiting not just law people <laughs> law students but those of you interested in history i would say yes docks and docks and ports are always interesting aren't they history and was it exeter as well it's fascinating chantal stebbings has done quite a bit on, on that on what the buildings look like anyway that's taking us off track isn't it so the the big question here is did was it was it then in the in the contemplation of the past did they know about this what do we think i mean on a point of law that seems to make sense it's something that we've discussed in the past we've got a previous episode the achilles the achilles anyone know how we say that correctly i've always wondered achilles achilles yeah we've talked about that one before 
What do we think about this one then? Well, Severine's written the textbook, so I'll let her go first. Quite literally, <laughs> quite literally <laughs> written the textbook on this. <laughs> I, I, I will chip in when I think you've got it wrong. How about that, Severine? <laughs> <laughs> Maggie, <laughs> when? <laughs> Ow. <laughs> uh. It's it's number 22. <laughs> Why mention it now? Why send it what? to me now? <laughs> Outrageous! <laughs> well, given Outrageous that it's... Um, suggestion. This is English common law. Based on French law, finest, of course, proven. <laughs> well, if you read the decision, don't mind all that, no. It is English common law, but, you know, the articulation of the principles uh, is based on civil law, but they also referred to some, um, you know, French doctrine, domain, all that. So, um, so f- I was quite impressed by that. That's I know. quite a lot of comparative law. Com- I know, comparative law in, you know, yeah. I mean, I, of course. Is, can I just ask a question? Is that the era when we were mindful of what jurists like? Potia would would have said about such things. Was that the era when we actually listened yes, to French? Yes, yes. Even though Potia is not and, like and she mentioned Doma, you know, who is another <laughs> important uh, French lawyer. But I think if this is another podcast, probably already, you know, five minutes in, and we have already diverted twice. The I think English judges are very, very, very mindful of what is happening elsewhere. So I think this is not typical of just that time. I think it's it's always been that way. Of course, nowadays they are perhaps looking more at common law, but I think the comparative... Yeah, we don't hear so much now in modern judgments, do we, of of the views of French jurists from the well, 18th no, not, century? Not, not on that particular no. topic, but I think, you know, what is happening in, in other jurisdictions, both civil common, is something that actually I am amazed at how much they do it, and I shouldn't be amazed, but in another past life, Tim and I... We did comparative law. So that is actually really interesting to see what judges in this country do and look uh, how widely they look at other jurisdictions. And Don't you think that's just a recognition of, <clears throat> in a sense, globalisation? Um, if, if you're developing English law, you need to keep more than half an eye on what's happening elsewhere simply because... There's an awful lot of commerce and trade, which is not peculiar, if you like, to Gloucester or Greenwich. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to be aware of and keep up with developments yes, and I th- Otherwise, English law might fall by the wayside and not be as popular as it has been in the past in terms of choice yes. of law. And I think it's now, still, now you know, it, it's not just because of the globalisation. I think if you look at cases... I've got a case on Nemoda, the Shogun case, where there is a part mistaken identity and the consequences when there is a, a conflict of title. That particular decision, the judges actually looked at German law, the states, and perhaps another jurisdiction. When So it's not just because of uh, globalization, is when there is a particular problem, a particular legal conundrum, uh, the judges... Yes, but I would still say that has at its root a commercial or completely. business motivation Absolutely, behind completely. it. Absolutely, completely. So it's, you know, 
some some are obviously and directly connected yeah. with commerce, and others are yes. more indirect or oh, intangible. No. But it's always yes. there, isn't it? Contract law is always about absolutely, De- definitely the idea that English contract commercial law is the invisible export because of what you've just said, Maggie. That you know the ch- choice of many many parties choose English law because it's regarded as being certain and predictable etc etc but that is the position that has always been for a long time and it's therefore still is and I think the the courts are very mindful of being certain being predictable be being facilitators of commerce and I've just read something saying that there is a resurgence of formalism by Professor Catherine Mitchell, a really interesting book if you want Mm. to go and have a look at it, a little plug for Catherine here, Uh, Vanishing Contract Law. But yes, uh, but that is a a really interesting point to make about the role of English law beyond the borders of these lovely isles that we live in. What's interesting there, though, is that now Lord Boas... uh, a few years back did a did a bit of an analysis on how often other jurisdictions are brought up in the supreme court I was thinking and actually of that. it was it's declined ah i mean the, the 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 stats don't look good ah okay um from 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 the papers if i i might i might be misremembering it's years and years ago since i read it but considering how much it's been discussed here in this case in in that day and age in in contrast basically he concludes i think from the paper and I may be getting this completely wrong, so please do your own research, listeners. But, I, <laughs> but, but, but my, my understanding was from the, from the papers, actually, it's really rare that at least at the, at the top level, judges are still discussing other jurisdictions and law in other jurisdictions. I suppose one would have to do a great deal of research or analysis as to what types of cases, therefore, are going to the Supreme Court Quite. and if they are necessarily looking inward peculiar rules or principles that are English then there would be far less need to look elsewhere it's it's perhaps the more general principles of wider public interest public policy that are much more sort of vague in their content where you might want to look elsewhere and we, that's only and what's expressed isn't elsewhere it? will decline after um, departure from the EU mm. I, I, you know don't know yeah I, th- I think we're going I, I need track. to explain yeah. myself as to uh, why I interject so rudely with Tim there, because any student listening might be confused about that particular point. So if we just sort of nail that down before we go too much further. Um, if you listen back, dear listener, um, Tim gave what we often mod- in modern speak call the two limbs of Hadley and Baxendale uh, and their alternative, because you said the word either. In the in the speech, right. so their alternative, that the first one is um, losses that would naturally arise in the ordinary course of the, of the events, as it were, in the event of breach, and that's what we would call imputed knowledge. In other words, nobody is discussing these things at the time of contracting, uh, but if you like, they they come from the school of the bleeding obvious, as I sometimes say. Um, whereas the alternative limb is this sort of special extra knowledge that you might have as the proposed defendant or the person who's at risk of possibly damages in a breach situation. So if you've got special extra knowledge of facts, then that could make a difference to your liability. And we often think it would extend and expand on your liability, but I suppose it's possible that it works in the other direction. 
And that's why I was pointing out a particular problem in this case, back to 1854, as to whether or not um, Pickford's, through their agent, did know that the mill was stopped. And I think, if you look very hard at the judgment, that was not proven. And therefore, the losses were only those to be calculated under the first limb, or sometimes called the normal limb, the uh, unexceptional, not, not the un- unexceptional, exceptional, not the unusual limb. And it was, I suppose, if you were to look at the damages actually awarded, you might think, well, how actually is that calculated? So the calculation has come much later. Back in 1854, these things in terms of quantum were decided by the jury. And uh, our American cousins, I think, are still wedded to jury use in civil. But we've junked that. I think we've taken the view that juries are probably reliable on guilt and innocence, but deeply unreliable and often irrational in terms of setting figures. So we, we don't trust ordinary people on money, basically. But back then we did. An interesting bit of history. I think Pickford's had offered £25. Now, that's quite a sum in today's money, but nevertheless, not a vast amount. The claimants, Joseph and his brother, Joseph and Jonah Hadley, they were seeking 200 quid when it started. And by the end of the trial, they couldn't really show that. And it had petered down to 120. And the jury came back and gave them 75. So that's kind of like telling you a lot, I think, about juries, certainly in 1854, if not today. So so students, if you're new to Hadley and Baxendale, you might, and when you look in Severine's textbook or some other uh, different textbook, you might see these two limbs. And that first one is the imputed foresight, assumed knowledge. And really, this case was mm. about that. And the second limb is the sort of actual foresight of things. And that will be very fact-specific. I think I would say that. The other thing I would chip in at this point is Dr. Tim alluded to one of our other podcasts, which is the Achilles, if I'm saying that right. And so if you were listening to that alongside this, you might think, hello, what's happening now in 2008 (laughs) or whenever it was? As a lot of people did. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, that's that's a question that came up. So if you look at that, Lord Hoffman starts using the phrase assumed responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. So this assumed responsibility is sort of embedded, as far as Lord Hoffman is concerned, I think, in that limb one. Because Achilles, if you go back, listen to that or read the case yourself, you will see that actually at first instance, or I think it was started out as an arbitration. Anyway, at the first time of hearing this, um, the losses claimed there would have looked like limb one, the first normal natural consequence type losses. Uh, And yet he's not using that, obviously, that clearly, the language from 1854, he's sort of giving it a, you might say, a modern gloss to that. But then there's a lot of contention as to whether he's trying to change it and to bring it alongside closely with tort law. And so is there a problem about that? So these two cases separated by 100 years are quite interesting to see, actually, have we changed shift from Hadley and Baxendale or or not and I think I I don't know yeah I I would agree with you most of the cases that we've got since Achilles say well no we haven't Uh, Lord Hoffman didn't mean to junk Hadley and Baxendale 
Uh, he wasn't dissing it, if that's the modern jargon. Uh, <laughs> that is your caption. I have no idea. Lord I have no idea dissing if, it. if I'm using that oh, yes. was not, I was going to no. say, Maggie, Maggie starts dissing. Is that, that's it. <laughs> no, I would never do that. So we still think, on balance, I think, that Hadley and Baxendale, 150 years later, is still the leading light, as it were, although fundamental base point for our uh, law about foreseeability is that strange word that we use. Uh, or I, I prefer, I don't know about anybody else, I prefer foresight of losses because that's, I think, a bit clearer. And to separate that from causation. So causation is a different thing. I don't know at what point you want me to talk about. Uh, one of our dear listeners, a, a particular dear cousin from over the pond, uh, had a particular interest in a particular aspect of how Hadley and Baxendale is being used in more modern times. So I, I need perhaps to answer that particular question as best I can. So I don't know when you... Yeah, let's jump in. Uh, That's in, right. Why, in do, why don't we things. jump in with that? And, and, <clears throat> all right. Yeah. If I hit you with this, and then you can see whether you agree with all of this or, or whether... Um, the point is, I think, in recent years, well, relatively recent years, since the Second World War, there have been a, a number of English cases that seem to be using Hadley and Baxendale as the base for something entirely different from foreseeability of losses. Um, that is, the case is being used in the context of interpretational construction of an exclusion clause. And if you think about it, that's already a little bit odd because exclusion clauses tend to be written looking at the wording of causation. Because what you're trying to do with an exclusion clause is generally to recognise the prospect of liability. And so that's Hadley and Baxendale. And then at that second next stage to try and remove that liability with an exclusion clause. But we've got a number of cases that seem to be using the language of Hadley and Baxendale when they're looking at the interpretation of exclusion clauses. Uh, so, for example, this has come up specifically where an exclusion clause uses the sort of technique jargon of something like, I will not be liable for any indirect or consequential losses, that sort of language. And the difficulty with that, uh, certainly consequential, is that it's inherently vague and un uncertain as to what the heck that means. Because in a sense, all losses are consequential uh, to, to a certain extent, direct or indirect. So it's, it's a little bit odd as to what exactly that means. And so we've got a number of cases that seem to say, well, an exclusion clause that is using the technique of indirect or consequential is looking to exclude only those losses that would fall within limb two of Hadley and Baxendale. Ergo, it follows, if the losses are within limb one, if you follow me thus far, as happened in Hadley and Baxendale, for example, as arguably happened in the Achilles, an exclusion clause which is using the technique or language of indirect or consequential or abnormal or words like that, or special even, a word like that, 
it's not embraced by the particular problem in hand. In other words, the exclusion clause has nothing to bite upon. So that exclusion does not affect the defendant's liability if the liability is all within limb one. Does that make sort of sense thus but far? It, yes, yes, it does, but the... That's the main problem, if you like, with we've got a run of cases. And when I, someone could, could look these up, but um, in Chitty, for example, it gives that in, in, in footnotes. And both Chitty, which I, I don't know about other people in other jurisdictions, but Chitty on contract law yes. is our, probably our leading practitioner yes. text, I would say, for contract yeah. law. That is the heavy tome, not designed for a student's consumption, but designed for a practitioner. And the other one in our jurisdiction would be McGregor on damages. That's, all, that's obviously does what it says on the tin. It, it's looking at damages specifically. I think both of those uh, modern editions with the current editors, and obviously editors have changed over 150 years. They, these are texts that have been going a very long time. Their modern take on this is that this is in error. These cases that are using the language of Hadley and Baxendale and applying it as a technique or tool for interpretation of exclusion clauses is a misstep, if you like. But what we have is we have a number of cases at court of appeal level which are basically accepting that this is so. So we've got a, a weird sort of situation where you might, if you look very carefully at these cases, say that actually that's not correct. But we have at least 70, 80 years worth of case law, which seems to be saying, nevertheless, this is how uh, people would regard this wording to mean. So we have a situation, I suppose, almost like Humpty Dumpty. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty, said in the scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. That's Alison, the looking glass, I think. But um, we've got a situation where we might have doubt in terms of the legal analysis that this wording is correctly used and does mean what uh, people have accepted it to mean. Nevertheless, because it has been settled as to that usage, it now becomes, doesn't matter really, in a sense, what it really in truth means. It's become accepted to, to mean this, and therefore it's going to take quite a bold court of appeal and or Supreme Court to say, never mind the last 80 plus years, uh, that, was, that was all wrong. And if you're using that technique now, you've got it wrong. And can you see that's why that's quite bold to un unsettle an accepted way of doing things, even if analytically it's not looking right. It's, it's, it's quite a bold thing, certainly for the Court of Appeal to do, because coming back to where we started today, actually, Severine, when you and I were debating about this uh, support of commerce and business, there is quite a pressure on the common law, yes, to keep up with other things and other developments and other places in the world. But there's also a sort of restraining, almost like reins on a horse, as it were. You know, you don't give the horse its full head. You're, you're controlling the development. So it's evolution, not revolution. And business generally doesn't like revolution because that's unsettling and unknowable, as it were, and unpredictable. But we've got a number of cases more recently, and indeed Lord Hoffman is on record in, um, I think the, I can't remember which case it is, I think it might be the Caledonian 
uh, da, 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 I can't remember, Caledonian case, one of the Caledonian cases about the oil rigs. Uh, I think Lord Hoffman says actually he would like to reserve the judgment on that sort of uh, argument to, to another case. So we have uh, a sort of slight, slight qualificational shifting in the enthusiasm, as it were, for this uh, accepted norm uh, in, in more recent cases. But both Court of Appeal and First Instance, and I think Tia J in Ferryways in 2008 caught it quite well because he says, although it can be seen from the above cases, so there's all the cases that Chitty uh, tracks here, the words indirect or consequential, in quotes, appear to have acquired a well-recognised meaning. The scope of the accepted losses in Clause 9 in that case must depend on the true construction of that clause. Unless this clause has been the subject of a decision, which it has not, previous decisions cannot bind this court in construing the particular words or phrases. And then he goes on, he says, where a party seeks to protect himself from liability for losses otherwise recoverable by law, for breach of contract, he must do so by clear and unambiguous language. In the light of the well-recognised meaning which has been accorded to such words in a variety of exemption clauses by the courts from 1934 to 1999, it would require very clear words indeed to indicate that the party's intentions when using such word was to exclude losses which fall outside the, outside the well-recognised meaning. So that's a kind of like a recognition that we have an accepted meaning of words, which if some court of appeal, or perhaps better still, Supreme Court actually looked in detail at this, would say, actually, that those last 80 years, people have been using this wording incorrectly. That's going to take quite a bold step. If I was going to go well out on a limb here and offer any advice to anyone, so anyone listening who are business people, not lawyers, or indeed lawyers, I suppose, so if I went right out on a limb, you've got two choices here, <laughs> depending how risk averse you are. This is what I, how I'm going to put it. If you're um, a devil may care sort of bod, you will continue to use that language of consequential, indirect. If you're thinking about limb two of Hadley and Baxendale. So if you want to exclude the limb two Hadley and Baxendale, the current state of play would be behind you and support you by using the words indirect or consequential. But you run the risk that at some later point in English law, Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court will grasp this nettle and say, well, chaps, that doesn't look right to us. The alternative, the more risk-averse approach, I'm going to put it to you, certainly the one that I would advocate if I was drafting or worrying about this myself, would be to not use these vague terms like consequential, because it's, what the hell does that really mean? And it would be better to be very specific if you possibly could. So if you're wanting, for example, to exclude claims for loss of profit, then use, use those words, because then the court can see that you have chosen specific wording which is not falling in line with this sort of common acceptance and therefore it will stand or, fo on, or fall on the quality of your own drafting. I think that's what I would do myself. So I don't know what wow. you think about any of that. Talk about... <laughs> yeah, so do you, do you know what's not risky? <laughs> ah, 
Yeah, I bet I do. It's a place somewhere up north. It's quite right. Newcastle Law School is now offering a brand new LLM in Emerging Technologies and the Law. Find out how law, economics, politics and society intersect in the digital world. Visit ncl.ac.uk to find out more. Thank you, Newcastle Law School, for sponsoring Unpacking Contract Law. So, Severine, you are coming in. (laughs) Yeah. Now, it's probably not the sort of thing that makes it into a student textbook, possibly, is that right, Severine? No, no? but I think you've opened, you know, a a, a can of worms here, and I mean, in, in... Oh, it wasn't me, mate. No, 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 but me. it's it was it's, it's court of appeal. Sorry, court no, of no, appeal. No. What done? What I'm it, saying not is me. that I think maybe we've got our work our work cut out for the next two or three podcasts. I think it would be really nice to actually. So, since that point was raised by a listener, we need to actually give it the due consideration. But I think it might be nice to next look at things from a viewpoint for of exclusion clause and interpretation because that's what comes to mind so i think the okay well we could find yeah no I, I, I think that would be another podcast mm. yeah which is about exclusion clauses which is bang on that point i think in the recent years judges have actually tried to square the circle because the law needs to be or the law is coherent and the law needs to be uh, coherent. So I think what is, you know, there has been a lot of work done by the lower court now endorsed by the, in terms of damages, by the uh, higher courts about how, you know, what are the uh, expectation damages and how the uh, wasted expenditure. So I think they've, they, the, 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 the coherence is, is being worked upon here. So for me, what has been raised here is of a similar need for coherence in terms of vocabulary and how it is so that what is said in one part of the law is also coherent and works well with another part of contract law, especially... Yes, okay, coherence, but you have to be careful about the use of rules in developed in one context and then applying it somewhere else. Let, let me finish uh, my train of thought, because my first instinct, so Maggie, you did say the piece of advice for businessmen to avoid vague term. Yes, it's, I think that is really well recognised following the rules of interpretation of exclusion clause, that anything that is vague is going to be interpreted against the person who tries to rely on it. So that is really important piece of advice. But therefore, for me, what is interesting here is I would want to read those cases because in a way it makes so the looking at Hadley and Baxendel and how it has been interpreted and so it's still very good law but the bulk of cases has always been about the link so how to interpret the two limbs that Tim read at the beginning and that Maggie you did explain that indeed there are two limbs you either have the imputed uh, normal losses or losses which were not within the contemplation of the parties and so Maggie you did mention uh, you know, foreseeable. Uh, technically, here it's talking about probable um, probability, but that has always been the sticky point. What is where do the normal losses end, and where do the more difficult losses, the those which are uh, too remote, etc., etc. So, 
on the one hand, it makes perfect sense for a business to just try to limit their liability according to what is within the contract contemplation. So this is a really long-winded way of saying, I'd love to, before I can give a real answer, um, an enlightened and informed answer, I'd like to actually uh, see those cases from the viewpoint of uh, the exclusion clauses, because those give rise to well, interesting, interestingly enough, if you look at Chitty, for example, which is our leading text, Chitty really abandons analysing those cases. Uh, they basically say there's no point going through these cases. This is just now the accepted, recognised use of the, this phraseology. So so don't worry that you haven't looked at them. Chitty <laughs> doesn't do it. They, 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 they say, look, there they are in the footnotes. Basically, this is the accepted use of this phrase. Until it's uh, not. They, they say it's, well, it's analytically incorrect. In I, I think the problem, I, as I see it anyway, is Hadley and Baxendale, certainly for students who are listening, is about prediction or foresight of things that might happen. And, you know, uh, as, um, as we all know, prediction of the future is very difficult um and so you know severine you were talking about the facts and the particular context yes um limb one and limb two are necessarily general in uh the way they are cast they have to be because each particular uh, normality if you like for limb one or unusual special for limb two will be very fact specific on those particular contracting parties in the setting. I agree with you, Maggie, that, you know, it's difficult to predict the future. But for me, it's so much more simple than that. It's not about predicting the future. It's what is within the contemplation of the parties. So as much information can be given, and that is the crux of here, did the defendant know about the fact that the shaft was unique and therefore it, that was the only one that they had, and so therefore that made the whole delay so impactful? Yes, so when I'm talking about prediction of the future, that's really what I mean. You have to sort of, when you're trying to draft these things, you have to stop and think about, well... If this all goes pear-shaped, I know. So what they've... might happen? What could happen? That's the prediction. Oh, I, okay. I, I, I don't mean prediction in the sense, what's yeah. bound to happen in the future? Not that sort of clairvoyant, oh, okay. I've got my crystal ball, I can see what's going to happen to you in 10 days' time. Not like that. It's the, the it's contractual, the the, the, the sort of within the framework of, of the contract. The, yeah, yeah. The, okay. the real the risk. risk. Yeah, okay. The real risk of things yeah, for the that, planning that happen in the future, and, that, and that's where exclusion, yeah. that's where exclusion clauses come in, right? The exclusion yeah. yes, clauses that's, are part that's of yeah. the planning. Yeah, that's their raison isn't it? So all I'm saying is, it would be better to actually try and classify the types of things that might happen rather than use these sort of vague umbrella terminology that may have an accepted meaning now. But in an ideal world, it really is not precise enough, is really, I suppose, what I'm saying. So generally, if you're talking about loss of profits, is probably what most businessmen, really, businessmen or women, probably have in mind when they talk about indirect or consequential. They, they probably yes. mean money and uh, yes. profits and expenses. Then 
why not nail it down in those terms? Because I think probably, so I am working on my lectures on exclusion clauses, so I think it's good, you know, yeah. Ah, uh, oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you so know. this is timely, so the, really. Um, you know, it, it always says that what is parties have to be as precise as possible, but so here there was neglect and negligence was not part of it. But the problem is that if sometimes you are too open <laughs> for businesses, you know, if you put negligence it's going to scare everybody so i think that it's a fine balance between actually writing yeah, yeah i don't yeah. want to have a liability for uh, loss of profit and if you use words such as consequential losses then it's a little bit more vague and so therefore it seems in principle yeah i can live with that if you know what i mean so okay. that's that's the balance yes yeah, so that's a business decision in exactly so i think that happens a lot doesn't yeah. it severine that business people will take a view yes. about wording which will be yeah. accepted basically yeah. by the other negotiating party yeah. and you're kind of like riding on hope <laughs> so both parties hope that they don't need to look at the clause yeah. in the future in any yeah. great detail and certainly they hope that they'll never get in front of a court. yeah in any you know in some ways it links a little bit to what we were talking about in in the previous podcast about uh, Baird about the distinction between you know lawyers and and, and businessmen yes. and so yes. as lawyers the problem is that as soon as we are asked to draft not that I know because I have never been a practicing lawyer but I can see that you know that the difficulty of having to draft something so immediately okay so what does that mean and we need to be very precise and does whilst businessmen probably you know loss of profit yeah that's what i don't want but i don't want to say that so consequential loss yeah that sounds reasonably woolly and and, and vague and so that that is actually really interesting the uh, the question that was raised by our listener has made my little cog work and i'm thinking hmm interesting so yeah well also in a sense business people are naturally perhaps positive in outlook and they're looking to make the contract function yes. and earn lots of money and uh, this relationship is going to go fine and this is what we both want so that's a sort of positive upbeat t- type of stance whereas if you send the papers to check or draft to a lawyer we're naturally quite we're, we're downers if you like we're sort of quite naturally negative people well we have to be i suppose in terms of our own defensive position professionally, yes. we're almost looking on the bad side all the time. You know, what's the worst case scenario? <laughs> Whereas business people are wanting the best case scenario. So yes, well, I think what you're saying a few minutes ago, Severine, it, it's really captured in that best case, worst case outcome yeah. and the sort of attitude that lawyers have as opposed to business people. Yeah, but also lawyers are, you know, usually hired in order to prevent uh, catastrophes and to protect. Well, to so minimise minimize the risk. Yeah. about minimising And so therefore, the risk, if you, you know, do something that doesn't minimise the risk, then of course, you know, your neck is on the block, so to speak. So, yeah. <laughs> so Fearing because that I might, we've had yeah, these cases yeah. running for a long period of time, and as uh, Tia J says... You know, the, these are the accepted meanings of this these words. Whether or not they have that actual meaning, the Humpty Dumpty thing, uh, um, really, in a sense, doesn't matter. Quite. So, so long as the Court of Appeal is happy to go along with that. But that's why I say that is the risk that at some point in the future... Uh, somebody says, hang on, you know, the music's now stopped, as it were. Um, 
the, the use of that phraseology is is a misuse. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's a misuse when you when you come when you get time to to look at these cases, Severin. I, maybe I, I'd like to persuade you that that, that is a misuse, because um, Hadley and Baxendale is about foresight, is about things that might happen in the future, and the language of causation is really what's captured with consequential and direct and indirect. Certainly, any insurance lawyer out there. If you say direct as opposed to indirect, this sort of capturing the idea of cause and effect, mm. and and so we're using words in an entirely different meaning. We've hijacked, in a sense, Hadley and Baxendale, and we're we're applying it in a totally different context that was never really it was not really fashioned for that at all. So I think there's been a misstep, but now it, I suppose the pragmatic thing to say is well you know does it really matter and that's possibly why chitty just puts it in footnotes you know hell who cares about those cases now people just accept that phraseology as being so but you know to come back where we started today about other jurisdictions i think chitty does recognize that this has not been accepted elsewhere Hmm. so i think admittedly it's only first instance but i think i made a note um that australia there are a couple of states in australia who says oh the Poms have got it wrong there. Oh. For example, they don't use that language, of course. No. But, but, um, but, but to refer to the, the English cases are, are in error, and I think maybe Canada too. So the second caption strangers. for these, the Poms have got it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's the maybe. title of the show. Let's uh, forget the case name. We're putting that up as a title. Um. So, so maybe we have got it wrong, but I think the throwaway line, I would say, does it matter insofar as courts will support the use of this phrase? Quite. And I think that's probably one of the, the key points that we picked up in, in previous podcasts as well. So, so long as the parties actually know what it means, it's, it's like the baker's dozen, right? It's, it, it doesn't matter what the phrase sounds like. It's what it means to the parties. I think it becomes more difficult if the parties are using it, not knowing what it means, thinking it has the natural natural language meaning. That's when it... When it but, but in these cases... Uh, yeah, but remember, when we talk about intention and meaning, it's objective, isn't it? So we don't ask the parties what they thought they were doing with this wording. We stand back from them... And that's the important point that this phraseology, this technique in terms of drafting has become the accepted norm. And so it's become the objective understanding. And so the parties are presumed to share that objective understanding. But my only other point on that is if you actually want to be very clear about the extent of your losses, you probably arguably I would say, wouldn't use that technique. You would be clearer about it. But as Severine says, in a pragmatic, commercial-minded lawyer's view, that was hers, parties may not want to confront, if you like, to make it explicit what they're talking about here because they are operating on hope and they don't want wording which might be challenging, if I put it that way, in the negotiating period. I think that was your main uh, quite powerful point, the sort of pragmatism of business. So we come full circle again, really, to the sort of raison d'etre of English contract law uh, and all other jurisdictions, possibly. The law is there to support and facilitate business, not screw it up, not make life difficult yeah. for business people. Um, 
I think we do need to pick up those cases again. That would be quite interesting, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I think it would. I, I really think it would, uh, especially... Well, I'll have a look in chitting. Yeah, no, I think... Five or yeah. six, but they're just footnoted. No, but I, I think maybe, you know, I have to confess, I had never thought of that link that the, the listener well, highlighted. The... So no doubt uh, my failing. But I think it is a really interesting... Um, something that, you know... There is a little scratch there now that I know, and so I need to go and have a look at. Well, what we need, therefore, to explore this further is, is possibly a court of appeal decision on an exclusion yes. clause which uses the the technique, the language of consequential or and or indirect losses and some discussion of that. Um, I think I picked up one recent. Hotel Services and Hilton Hotels, that's 2000, where Court of Appeal was a wee bit critical of the traditional approach. Lord Justice Sedley says, but it has the virtue of practicality. Always a nice one. Common, <laughs> common sense of practicality are those those words where, where, yeah. What is going to be in the uh, carnival? Yeah. There, there you go. <laughs> um, wasn't, we could also bring up, we could bring up the idea no of causation, the, the causation remoteness distinction was also something wasn't that something that was brought up yes. in yeah. the Achilleus as well I, I seem to remember back on my mind yeah was, I was going was to say the Achilleus of, are yeah. these actually two different things and and I think the, the, the court said yes it, yes yeah. they still are um, but that was part of the debate yeah. so that might be something for us to unravel as well because there were a few cases that followed that in that same category and again, this is back in my mind. This is not something that I've checked in advance. But you know, that distinction makes big difference. Well, I don't know what you think, but simplistically, I've always thought that causation can run forever, infinitum, as it were, in a sort of domino effect, cause and effect, direct, indirect, on it goes, on it goes, on it goes. And therefore, from a practical commercial, which is Severine's big take today, actually, uh, your theme really was about supporting business and so forth, there has to be rules which have a natural cutoff point, and that's where the remoteness comes in. And that is one big principle of French law upon which uh, this case is based on, actually. That was one of the arguments to make the distinction uh, between the, in terms of foreseeability, what comes within the foreseeability and the articles that, you know, the case mentions, which of course are no longer relevant because we had a change of uh, civil code. But that was the big distinction between tort and, and contract, that tort, everything goes, uh, but contract, there has to be a cutoff point and that is the whole difficulty of the articulation. What is that cutoff point? And therefore we go back to the two limbs of uh, yes. Hanley and Baxendale. So, yes. So that's why I'm saying causation and foreseeability are, are different yes. things. Uh, didn't we look at Globalia we did. We did. in a previous podcast? Fulton Shipping, And that's yeah. causation, is it not? So the, the cause and effect, whether this is an outside right, event yes. that's been, yeah. uh, causing these these losses or whether it's the uh, cause of, of the defendant, the wrongdoer, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we haven't actually... So yeah. Hadley and Baxendale is not about causation at all. Do you think, it's about do you think we ourselves point. need to listen back <laughs> yeah. to what, what, what position did I take in... in the in underlying message... 
the underlying message of this. Actually, you guys, you. you know, please go and listen to yourselves again. It's like it's like listening to uh, oh, it's awful. I know. Lecture. I don't. It's I, a thoroughly bad idea. Yeah, it is. I I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, Yes. Don't, don't, never, don't never look, look back. back. That's don't our takeaway from Hadley and Baxendale. Never look back. Never look back. Um. Yeah. Don't okay. look back. Yeah. So we've got we've got two headings for this. The takeaway thoughts, dear students, dear listener, is the Poms have probably got it wrong, but who cares? I like that. And I think that, I mean, could, could we have a more perfect <laughs> ending? We didn't. I don't think we actually discussed much of Hadley and Baxendale itself, but I don't think there is much. So we did. We did. Well, but, we but, did. Actually, yeah. we did because you know the, the, the Hadley. You know, as you said, Tim. You know, it's actually quite a, a short decision. There are quite a few things that we don't know. Um, you know, clearly negligence didn't come into it, but we don't know, or it has not been uh, established. But of course, these primary cases, as I call them, you know, those setting up setting uh, these cases setting up principles which are relied upon so i think we have discussed it and we have used these as a conduit to discuss to you know so is it still relevant completely uh, is it still good law yes but it you know with new cases it you know we need to go back in order and i think for me the what is really interesting is you know whether the interpretation of these notions are logical and whether they still make sense and uh, so yes i think well we I have, would defend, yeah, uh, we have yeah. discussed uh, I suppose the one ago. thing that we we could we could bring in here is that the big difference had had they actually communicated or effectively communicated that they needed that that the shaft would work and the mill was out of um, out of action um, then they would have got yeah well they would have got 120 120 yeah, yeah, pounds as opposed to 75 really or it would not have gone to court and we would not be discussing Hanley and Baxendale today well I think the problem it looks to me like the problem that, wasn't that, so that, much that, yeah that no no I think the communication there was a communication problem within <laughs> Pickford's probably I mean if, if we I'm guessing here but I'm yeah. guessing there was a communication problem between those who actually accepted the goods and those with them carrying the goods because there was probably then, someone yes. in the office so probably yeah. in London going, well, the ideal place to send, you know, we're sending a whole load of stuff to, to um, uh, W. Joyce. Uh, so, you know, yeah. we might as well Joyce. might as well stick it all on there. That makes sense, um, which is generally yeah, good point. But in this case, not a good idea. Um, it delayed it quite significantly. Well, it's about communication, isn't it? And the vagaries of it and the uncertainties of it. And uh, yeah. this was all largely oral and difficult yeah. to prove. So, you know, you are There's another you line are, to end on. We, yes. You are where you are. And that, I suppose, wraps it up. Thank you so much for sending in questions, dear listener. Or, or not just questions, but cases as well that you'd like us to discuss. So please keep those coming. Um, it might take us some time to get round to it as with so many things but we we will try to discuss the cases that you'd like us to discuss and if you would like to send us your suggestions unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com we look forward to seeing you hearing you are you hearing that? <laughs> thank you for that uh, in, in the next remember we are not listening <laughs> in podcast 23 exactly we're not listening back yes never look back don't get it wrong and so on and so forth Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.